As we go through the book of Luke, we have the great privilege this morning to begin discussing the temptation of Jesus. This is a very interesting passage. It starts with Jesus being filled with the Spirit. He was baptized by John. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. And now being filled with the Spirit, he comes up out of the Jordan River Valley and is led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. The leading of the Spirit of God is not just into great wealth and prosperity and goodness and all of the abundance of the land. In fact, what the Spirit does here is the Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. So Jesus, who has the Spirit, by the way, without measure, this is what John writes, that the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus without measure. He, is, he has all of the Spirit of God that anyone could possibly have. Um, no one other than Jesus has had this much of the Spirit. We are all filled with the Spirit as Christians. We are given the Spirit of God, but not like Jesus. Not, we, we get a measure. We get, we get some. We get some gifts. And Jesus had all the gifts. Jesus had all of the spirit that there was to get. And so Jesus is now going to, in the power of the Spirit of God, fulfill the ministry that God has given him. Jesus is down here for a purpose. His purpose is to show that it is, in fact, possible to live a perfect life. Something which, by the way, no one has been able to do. From Adam to today... None of us have been able, in this world of sin and difficulty and challenge, with the devil particularly chasing after us, none of us have been able to actually lead a sinless life, except Jesus. And by doing this, come the day of judgment, people will stand before God and they will say, well, it was impossible to lead a sinless life. I mean, of course, we're all sinners. The problem is, Jesus will be sitting on the throne, and he will be their judge, and he will be able to look at them and say, uh, actually, it was possible. I did it. And Jesus will have endured all of the temptations. And you won't be able to have the excuse that it was impossible. In fact, Jesus will say, all you needed to do was ask, and he would have gladly given us his righteousness. So there are no excuses. It wasn't impossible. In fact, Jesus was able to do it. And what's also interesting is that Jesus, when he came to this earth, you know, if Jesus had been born in a palace, if he'd have been born to some wealthy people who had all kinds of connections, and, you know, we might have looked at him and said, well, yeah, okay. I mean, of course, Jesus managed to pull it off. I mean, look, you know, he, he had every advantage, which, by the way, would be exactly what Satan said about Job. Remember when God puts forward Job, Satan's immediate response was, well, yeah, look what you've done for the guy. He's healthy, wealthy, and wise. Of course he serves you. Jesus is going to put a lie to the idea that it is somehow your environment. It's not your environment. In fact, if you want to start comparing environments, look at what Jesus is about to go through and look at what Adam had. You think, well, if we could just get out of this world full of sin and misery and, and put me in an environment where, you know, temptation wasn't quite so blatant and I, I could be a good person. Are you sure? 
All you got to do is look at Adam. He was in exactly that position. I mean, the guy actually had a perfect marriage. Can you imagine? Perfect wife. He was the perfect husband. Perfect food, perfect environment. It was all perfect. You're like, come on, Adam, you can do this. No, no, actually, he couldn't. The moment Satan came along and said to them, you know what? I think you ought to be able to be the master of your own life. You should have, you should have the opportunity to just do whatever you want. I mean, you don't need God hanging around telling you what to do all the time. Be your own God. You would think that Adam and Eve would look at that and go, uh, you know, we've got it pretty good. I'm not sure we could do better for ourselves than God is already doing for us. Which obviously was what they were supposed to conclude. That, in fact, is not what they conclude. They kind of like that idea. Eve, in particular, is completely captivated by it. She totally buys into it. She thinks it's the right thing to do to eat of the tree. Adam is at least like, yeah, no, no, this is not really a good thing to do. But actually, I, I think I want to be my own God. He's not, he's not deceived at all and just blatantly does it anyway. So Jesus has to reverse the curse. Can it be done? Can anyone do it? Is it possible for anyone to do it? And what's interesting, of course, is that when when Jesus shows up and is led into the wilderness, Satan doesn't go, ah, this is hopeless, I'm just going to go do something else. Oh, no. Satan comes right to the task. Okay. God wants to send his own son down here in the likeness of human flesh. God wants to actually take, you know, Jesus wants to veil his deity and come down here and take me on and human as a human. Great. I'll corrupt him like I've corrupted everybody else. It's clearly what the devil thinks. He immediately zooms in on the task. Of course, we know he fails, but Jesus goes into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness idea, right? Everybody who's, anyone who's Jewish, they, and anyone who knows their Old Testament, we all get that wilderness thing, right? Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. That's where they are. And how do they do? Well, they do terrible. That's how they do. They grumble and they complain and they're miserable and they're, they're unhappy about the food and they're unhappy about the water and they're unhappy about... It doesn't matter. They just grumble about everything. They're continuously miserable to the point where God finally just writes that whole generation off. And the generation that finally comes out of the wilderness is a completely new and different generation. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is going to come as the second Adam. And he's going to, like the nation of Israel, he's going to go into the wilderness. And he's going to be there just like they were. And the way Luke states this indicates that Jesus doesn't just get these three temptations when it's all over. He indicates that Jesus is tempted the whole time. I mean, the devil is just after him from the moment he gets out into the wilderness until the end. These three are explained to us. Um, clearly, Jesus relates these to his disciples. They would have no other way of having access to them other than that. And we don't really know exactly why Jesus picked these three, probably because they did come at the end, and they were probably the three most difficult. Satan had been trying the whole 40 days to see what he could do, and this has given him time to really think and come up with his A-game here. You know, the devil is going to really throw it at Jesus here at the end. Um, now, 
If you've studied this passage at all, or if you've sat and thought about the situation, you may be tempted, I use that word deliberately, you may be tempted to think, well, come on, you know, Jesus is God, he can't sin. I mean, if he can't sin, how in the world is this really a temptation? I mean, come on, if I couldn't sin, you know, bring it on. I, we can't sin, it's not possible, so that's almost like cheating. Okay, here's the thing we have to get about that. The word temptation, the word tempt, the word trial, the word test, they're all the same word. They're they're all the same word. So what we have here is that Jesus is going to the wilderness and is going to go through, as we'll see in a moment, all of these difficult things to show That where every single one of us fails the test, he passes it. That doesn't minimize the test. That doesn't somehow make it easier for Jesus. In fact, the very fact that all of us bail, all of us, you put us enough pressure on us, we find some sin or another to lapse into. None of us have actually really endured the ultimate in the assault of Satan. We all tend to, you know, we sin. We, we fall into selfishness or bitterness or anger or who knows what. But something comes along and grabs us. None of us have really resisted to the uttermost. We don't even know what that looks like. Except when we look at Jesus. Because Jesus, in fact, resists to the uttermost. He has been tempted in all points like as we are, except he passes the test. This is why when we read in James, count it all joy when you fall into various and sundry trials. God wants to put us in different races so that we can win different rewards. And sometimes God puts us in really difficult races, hard races, races that really try us. But God's purpose is never the same as Satan's purpose. Satan's desire is to destroy us. When Satan goes before God in regards to Job, when God says, okay, do whatever you want, Satan's complete desire is to get Job to sin. He he is trying really hard to get Job to do the wrong thing. Is that what God is doing? No, God is... God is simply putting Job through a test. The whole point from God's perspective is to show Satan and everyone else, you know what, you actually can put a believer through really hard times and they don't have to sin. They can endure, which Job does. And starts out a righteous man and ends a righteous man. How it must have galled the devil. As hard as he tried to go after Job, Job's like, well, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, I came into this world naked, and I'm going to go out of this world naked. So I didn't bring anything in. I'm not going to bring anything out. So in the meantime, if God shares a bunch of stuff with me, that's good. If God takes it all away, well, it was all God's anyway. Praise God. It's all his. If I happen to be the steward of some of it, good. If I'm not, well, it's okay. It's all God's anyway. Satan is the ultimate egotistical idiot. Satan thinks that, well, if I couldn't 
get through existence without sinning, neither can anyone else. Um, actually, yes, Jesus can. When we fall into trials and difficulties, they become a trial, becomes a temptation. James makes this very clear. A trial becomes a temptation when we make it one. We lapse into sin. We get in the middle of this trial and we say, I don't, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to go out and I don't know what. I'm going to do something so that I'm not doing what God wants me to do. I'm just doing what I want to do. That is when we take our trial and we turn it into a temptation to do something evil. This world, by the way, sorry to have to tell you this, I, <clears throat> this world does not exist to make us comfortable. Now, it might have originally, yes, God's original design was for this world when he put Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a great place. It was wonderful. But, you know, once they sinned, sin has consequences. And he told them not to sin. This world is going to now be working against us. Circumstances are going to be difficult. Expect it. We are going to be driven to want to see ourselves as the center of the universe. We're not. We are going to be tempted to think that somehow God doesn't love us. He does. In fact, every one of these trials that Satan is going to throw at Jesus is going to be directed at causing Jesus to wonder whether or not God really loves him and is really taking care of him. You'll, you'll see that as we look at all three of them. Jesus will face these trials without ever losing his trust in God. He will face them without ever, for a moment, thinking anything other than, God completely loves me and he's going to be sure and take care of me and it's okay. I'm perfectly willing to just let God be in charge. Not us, by the way. Not us. We are not content with letting God be in charge. We want to be in charge of our own lives. And that's, that's why we have the problems that we have. And this passage is in here to help us look. Watch. Watch how Jesus does this. Watch how this works. So that in your life, when trials come and difficulties come, look over and say, all right, am I going to rebel against God or am I going to yield to God? And of course, the obvious answer is yes, I'm going to yield. So the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for the specific purpose of being tested by the devil. So here's what he does. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan and is led by the Spirit, led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he eats nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became very hungry. 40 days. I don't know that we can make a whole lot out of the fact of 40 days. Maybe, perhaps, if you go without eating for 40 days, any time after that, you're probably doing irreparable harm to who you are. Uh, and Jesus is not trying to destroy himself. Um, a variety of things happen with the 40-day period, though. I, you, you look at the Old Testament, it's kind of interesting. Noah's flood, right, went for 40 days, right? Moses, when he was up on the mount getting the Ten Commandments, he was up there for 40 days. In fact, Noah, uh, excuse me, Moses. Moses will 
fast twice for 40 days. Um, Elijah fast for 40 days. So this 40-day fast thing is, there's, a, there's an Old Testament precedent for doing this. Um, Goliath, just for the record, will go out for 40 days and challenge the children of Israel. Send me a champion, and then David will show up. So Jesus gets out there. He's in the wilderness. It's now been 40 days without eating, and the devil, this slanderer, this accuser, the devil is the great Satan. He is arrogant, filled with pride, filled with um, I will. I will make myself like the most high. He's also a snake. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. The devil is filled with lies. If he opens his mouth, he's lying. And he travels about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. So Jesus is out there. Satan is perfectly willing to take advantage of this situation. God wants to send his son down here in human flesh. Fine. I'm perfectly willing to go over there and see what I can do to get him to sin, just like I've gotten every other human being who has ever lived to sin. So, he starts out. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. I mean, come on. You are supposedly God's son. I mean, I don't think there's any real argument here, and the devil is not trying to get into a theological argument. He's simply making the point that, look, you have this special relationship with God. You have this great thing going between you and God. Unlike anyone else other than Adam, I mean, you are the actual son of God here. And you're starving to death. I mean, you haven't eaten in 40 days. This is exactly how good is God taking care of you anyway. What are you doing out here? Oh, you came out here led by the Spirit of God? Really? God's Spirit led you out here for 40 days to sit around and starve to death? What kind of God are you serving anyway? I mean, what's going on here? Really, God has led you out into this desolate wilderness with no food for 40 days. This is the God you serve? I mean, can't you just hear Satan? This is the spirit with which Satan always speaks. He's... He's always slandering. He's always trying to make God look bad. So if you're out here, by the way, and you're starving to death, and, by the way, the devil has waited for this moment, the devil does not play fair. And he plays for keeps. When the devil shows up, should he show up in your life, expect him to show up at, like, the worst possible moment. This is, in fact, the worst possible moment. Jesus, not that he hasn't been bothering Jesus the whole 40 days, but the fast is now over. The moment has, Jesus went out there for 40 days. It's now 41 days, or the end of the 40th day. It's now time to eat. So, turn these stones to bread. Now, is there anything wrong with turning stones to bread for Jesus? No, no, there's not. It's not like there's some crime in this. Jesus is going to feed 5,000 people off just one kid's lunch. And later he's going to feed another 4,000 people in a similar situation. Jesus has the ability to just, you know, he could turn the stones into bread. Of course he could. Why not? He's God. He has the full capacity to do this. John the Baptist has already just said to the scribes and Pharisees, God is able of these stones to raise up children into Abraham. So if he can turn stones into children of Abraham, he can certainly turn stones into bread. And let's face it, Jesus, 
You're hungry. Come on, you got this appetite. There's nothing wrong with appetites. They're okay. They're good. You should feed this appetite. I mean, you're starving to death. Look at you. You're emaciated. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Come on. Eat up. Use your miraculous abilities to turn these stones to bread. When our appetites get going, we are tempted to say the same thing. We have needs. We have any number of fleshly appetites. And we think, by the way, that they should be taken care of when we want them taken care of. And if they're not taken care of when we want them taken care of, um, we too can become pretty upset. If you are here and you're thinking, well, I, I, I think I've got a pretty good handle on my patience. I'm a, I'm a pretty even-keeled person. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not too wound up. I, I, I think I, you know, anger, it raises its head every once in a while, but, but no, I, re- I really, okay, okay. Um, don't eat for four days. Give that a go. Just water. Just go for four days with just water. That's it. And then we can have a discussion about <clears throat> how your anger is and how your patients are and just how irritable are you anyway. And, and we can have a discussion about just how much of our calm, easygoing, everything's fine is really just because we're content. I mean, who in the world can't be easygoing and fine when your stomach is full and the temperature is good and everything is fine? I mean, everything is fine, of course it's fine. Let's have everything not be fine. Let's try not eating for 72, 96 hours. And then let's have a discussion. And by the way, it's, it's very biblical. Fasting is, is biblical. It's, you should probably do it anyway, I, you know. Not necessarily for a spiritual reason, although there are spiritual reasons, just because it can be good for you. You know, if you don't eat for four days and, you know, a couple of weeks later you end up skipping a meal and you go, oh, I'm hungry. No, no, this isn't hunger. I know what hunger is and this isn't it. It's an amazing thing to have control of your appetites. In fact, Paul states very clearly that though all things are lawful to me, I will not be brought under the power of any of them. It is important for us to get a handle on our appetites because the flesh has all kinds of appetites, insatiable. It doesn't really matter how much you get. It doesn't matter what it is. When you want it, you want it. And we really need to try to keep a lid on that. We need to have self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The devil wants us to have no control. The devil wants us to just give in to whatever kind of appetite we have. And then when we have these appetites and we can't seem to fill them, the devil comes along and says, well, that's because God doesn't like you. That's why you're not getting what you deserve. And clearly you, I mean, you deserve it. I mean, you ought to have, fill in the blank, whatever in the world it is. Jesus is in a position where if ever anyone had a legitimate reason to really do something extreme, to meet his hunger needs, this would be the moment. 
So go ahead. Now, why, why doesn't Jesus do that? I mean, the wicked, the wicked, they're full, right? The wicked, they seem to be doing fine. The wicked aren't out here in the wilderness for four days tempted by the devil. It's the righteous guy. And he's the one who's over here starving to death. So sure, why not? Just, just make the stones into bread and then I can eat my fill. But that, that isn't what Jesus says. Jesus does not allow the devil to slander God. Jesus looks at him and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Which Luke doesn't add, but Matthew does. Man shall not live by bread alone. In fact, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. And one of the things that being filled with the Spirit does is it brings to your mind the Word of God, which is why it's important that we read the Word of God, so that when our trials and our testings and our difficulties come, we, like Jesus, can endure them. Not get rid of them, but endure them. Just stand there and go, well, um, all things work together for good to those who love God. So as difficult as this challenge is and as hard as it is, I believe that God is going to be using this to bring about good in my life because I love God. And so, no, I'm not going to go sin. I'm going to do right. Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3, in which Moses says to the children of Israel, he humbled you and let you be hungry. Sound familiar? He humbled you and let you be hungry and then fed you with manna, which you did not know and your fathers didn't know. Morning dew lifted, and here was manna. That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is the passage Jesus quotes. God is going to take complete care of me. If God wanted me to have food, I'd have it. God has the ability to make these stones into bread. I don't have to. I am not going to circumvent the plan of God. Imagine, for a moment, that if Jesus had, in fact, turned the stones into bread. Well, what would we, what would we respond to that? See, there you go. I told you he wasn't tempted like we are. I mean, we don't get to turn stones into bread. Don't we? That's not an option for us. That is not available to us. So Jesus didn't really suffer like us. Because when the pressure really got on and he hadn't eaten for 40 days, he just turned stones into bread and ate them. Well, you know, here I am. I'm starving to death and I I can't turn. So Jesus doesn't. Jesus is like, no, I'm going to trust God. I, I, you don't live by bread alone anyway. When God wants me to die, I'll die. And if I die of hunger, well, oh, well, God will, if that's what God wants me to do, that's what I'll do. But I am not going to circumvent the trial that God has brought here. I'm going to go through it. The 40 days are over. Somewhere along the line here, God is going to provide me with bread in the normal, everyday fashion, or he'll do something that he's done like in the Old Testament. I mean, if, if God wants to, you know, the, the morning dew will go up and there'll be manna and I can eat that. So God is going to provide here somehow. But I'm not going to do it myself in defiance of God. So when his needs are not met, he just trusts God, which is exactly, by the way, what the Sermon on the Mount says, right? He, he, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, don't be anxious for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, or for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
They don't sow and they don't reap and they don't gather in the barns, but God feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than a bunch of birds? I mean, of course you are. So don't be anxious and saying, you know, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we clothe ourselves? Because for all these things, the lost, the Gentiles. But if we will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto us. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient to today is the evil thereof. It's okay. Whatever trial you're going through, just get through today. And God will provide something else tomorrow. Okay, second trial. So the, Satan takes him up into a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil says to him, I will give you all of this, all this domain and its glory. It's been handed over to me and I give it to whomsoever I wish. Therefore, if you just worship before me, it'll all be yours. Hmm. Really? Are they actually yours, Satan? Really? Or is this just another lie? Yeah, it's another lie. Now, Satan is the god of this world, and he has influence over events, but the kingdoms of the world, they're not his to give. They're not his to give. You go back. Uh, God puts down one and raises up another. We were just looking in, in Romans chapter 9 this morning with Pharaoh, and God said to him, for this purpose, I raised you up, that my name might be known through all the earth. Yeah, you, you got raised up as a great king, but it was only to show that God was even greater. When we, when we look back in the Old Testament, God makes the rich, God makes the poor, he makes people go low, and he exalts people. Jeremiah says this, Now I have given all these lands. When, when Nebuchadnezzar is ready to come and to invade the place, and what should we do? Well, you should just... Redeem your life. Go surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to win. He says, I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. This is God. And I've given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. The reason Nebuchadnezzar has the ability to rule the world, remember he had that vision, remember he had the dream of the statue and the golden head and, and, the, and the, the chest and then the two legs and then the feet. Well, this is what Daniel says to him as he interprets the, the dream. Daniel 2.37. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Not Satan. Satan didn't make Nebuchadnezzar king. God did. And God is going to make the, the Medo-Persian empire. That's at the hand of God, too. And the Roman Empire. I, I, all of these empires are all in the hand of God. Satan is just a liar. That's all he is. He's a liar. He's a filthy liar. Don't believe what Satan says. But he takes Jesus up there and he says to him, you know, these are all mine. I can give them to whoever I will. Liar. Uh, yeah, Satan can give you some glory. He can give you some success. You might look around at some people and wonder if they sold their soul to the devil to get some of the things they've got. Yeah, it's, it's possible. Satan can influence events, but he's not in charge. He's, he's not in charge. And for Jesus to actually bow down, what, to get these kingdoms from you? Why do I want to get these kingdoms from you? Jesus is already going to get every single one of these kingdoms. In fact, the whole world 
is going to be his. But it is going to be difficult. It is. He's going to have to go to the cross to do it. He's willing to do that, though. Jesus answered him and said, It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I'm not, I'm not bound down to anybody but God. I'm certainly not bound down to you. Again, quoting directly from, by the way, Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and only swear by his name. Jesus twice now is quoted from Deuteronomy. So he leads him up to Jerusalem and has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, which is probably the corner looking down into the Kidron Valley, and said to him, all right, if you're truly the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, all right, you want to quote the Bible? I'll quote the Bible. I'll I'll quote you a verse. It is written, he has commanded his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they shall bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now look, Jesus, you're out here starving to death. I mean, I offered you, you know, you, you could have just made some food. You didn't want that. You, the kingdoms of the world, you're, you're supposed to be the son of David. Remember that? Yeah, right. What a joke that is. I mean, look at you, some son of David. You're not ruling anything. You're in the wilderness. I'm offering you the kingdoms of the world. All you got to do is just bow down. I mean, that's not it's easier than the cross, right? Come on. Is God really ta- You don't have a kingdom. In fact, you don't even have a full stomach. Does God really love you? Are you sure God loves you? We got a test. Tell you what. Let's put you up here on the temple and on the off chance that you're not really sure whether or not God loves you, leap off the temple and we can all see whether or not God really loves you. Because, I mean, he's already promised that, it, you know, I mean, if you are the son of God, after all, you won't even dash your foot against the ground. And then you can really be sure that God loves you. Because i got to say, at this point, I don't, you don't really look like somebody God loves. you got no kingdom. I mean, look, it's starving to death. So maybe you better make sure God loves you. Go out and do something so that, so that God can really show that he loves you. And we can't minimize the misery that Jesus is in. He's in a real live human body, just like we've got. One of these things. And it hasn't eaten for 40 days. And he's just lived out in the wilderness for 40 days. No, no shelter. He's freezing at night and hot during the day. He, he, he has not taken a shower in 40 days. That would be enough to... Okay, what do I got to do? You know, uh, the, Jesus is, this is difficult. This is as hard as it gets. Even if he is God in the flesh, he is a miserable place. His body is screaming. He's probably sunburned and starving and all of the stuff, all those things that kick in, you know. If you don't eat, you can't control your temperature well. I mean, your body is not functioning good. All kinds of really interesting things are occurring here, which are quite unpleasant, particularly by 40 days. It is hard to imagine just how miserable he is. Chances are very good. None of us will ever experience this. And in the middle of this, here comes the devil to just poke him.
Jesus, of course, knows that God loves him. Although, if ever there were a moment to start questioning the love of God, this might be a good moment. The devil certainly thinks so. He thinks it's a great moment to start questioning the love of God because that's exactly what he's been doing to Jesus the whole time. Obviously, God doesn't love you. Look how hungry you are. And you're not ruling anything. And maybe we should have a test here and just be sure. God actually loves you. What does Jesus say? Jesus answers and says to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once more, by the way, quoting from Deuteronomy. I know, right? How often have you read Deuteronomy? I mean, you read Deuteronomy? Apparently, Jesus read Deuteronomy a lot. Memorized it, apparently, because here he is quoting this back to the devil over and over and over. And here he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, what happened at Massa? Well, this is the first time that Israel ran out of water. And they're out there, and they're like, what are we doing out here? You let us out here in this wilderness to die. You need to give us water that we may drink. We should have stayed back in Egypt, you know, with the leeks and the onions and all, that whole. But this is the first time they do all this. And Moses is looking at him like, what are, you, what are you arguing with me for? Why are you testing the Lord? Do you, know, do you think God is not going to take care of us? But the people thirsted and grumbled against Moses. He obviously brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Moses, not for the first time, says, Lord, how did, I, how did I get this job again? Explain to me again what it is. Am I, am I, what, you hate me? What am I doing taking care of this group of people? It's kind of a paraphrase, but that's more or less what Moses says. Uh, what, what do you want me to do? In fact, they're about to stone me. So God says, all right, pass to the people, pull out some leaders, get them out here. Take the rod that you used to smite the Nile with and get over here by this rock and whack the rock. And we're going to have water. Now, understand, right, this is a couple of million people with all their cattle. You know, when he hit the, when he hit the rock, you know, it wasn't like a, a trickle. When you hit that rock, you better stand back. There is water coming out of that thing like a river. And enough to give everyone a drink and all the livestock. But they tested the Lord. Is he really among us or not? Do not put God to the test. Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put God to the test. Now, do all things work together for good to those who love God? Yeah. Does that mean you can go play in traffic? No. Does, does that mean that you can go do something that you know you shouldn't do? I, no. Yes, God is faithful. Do not test God. Do not decide that, well, I'm a Christian, so I can just go do whatever I want. Uh, hmm. Ask David about that. How'd that go? David committed that sin of Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, and his kingdom was never the same. It was filled with sedition and intrigue, and his own kids rebelled against him, and he was continuously running for his life again, as if Saul wasn't bad enough. His own children plotted against him. Don't tempt God. Don't go out and do things that you know you shouldn't be doing. Just to see. Uh, don't worry. God pours his blessings out on us continuously, abundantly. Do your best to do right. 
How do you defeat the devil? How, how does this work? <laughs> Jesus shows us here, plain as day, right? Resist the devil. Quote the scriptures. Trust God. Guess what? When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him. Until a more opportune time. He'll be back. He'll be back. He'll be in the garden. When Jesus is in the garden, under such stress, he's literally bursting the capillaries in his skin and, and sweating blood. Oh, the devil's right there. But until a more opportune time. The devil is looking for opportune times. Don't give him one. Resist the devil. And know your Bible. If we know the scriptures, and we know what they say, and we think about them with some regularity, and we're working on memory. You know, if you memorize one verse this week, I don't know, find one you like. Put it on a three-by-five card. Stick it on the mirror. Stick it any number of places. Just put it in places you go so that it's just sitting there. Memorize one verse. It'll transform your life. Sit around. Think about it. How does that verse affect you? How does that verse apply to the situation that's going on right in front of you right now? Get that verse at work. Have it at home. Wherever it is. Take that verse, meditate on it, think about it, and incorporate it into who you are. It'll transform you. That's what the Word of God does. It transforms us. And when the devil shows up, you'll have in your arsenal a whole pile of verses that you can bring to bear to the situation. And believe me, they're coming if they haven't got here already. This is how we defeat the devil. This is how we win. The devil's a liar. Expect him to lie. He's going to tell you lies. Don't expect him to tell you the truth. But you should know the truth. And you should know the word of God. This is how we resist temptation. This is how it works. Jesus lays it out for us as plain as it could possibly be. Be filled with the Spirit. Know the word of God. Resist the devil. We win. The devil loses again. Because he's a loser. And he's a liar. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit in our lives. We thank you for showing us the truth. We thank you for enduring trials on our behalf. Thank you that you endured where all of us fail. Thank you for giving us your righteousness. And may we strive to lead righteous lives like you did, knowing your word, being filled with your spirit, and resisting the devil. All things we can do, may we do them. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen.